Welcome to the Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast, recorded live here at the Stephen P.J. Wood Building in Arlington, Virginia. This episode features Fox News contributor and veteran Pete Hegseth, who gave this speech in October 2016. Pete spoke about the upcoming presidential election and his experience fighting entrenched interests at the VA. So get some butter on your bagel and take a sip of your tea, because you're listening to the Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast. Are you looking to launch your career? Do you want to gain real, professional experience while sharpening your media skills? Then apply today to be a studio's intern here at the Leadership Institute. As a studio's intern, you'll master Adobe programs and get behind-the-scenes access to media professions across the board. Just go to leadershipinstitute.org and click on the Career tab to learn more. That's leadershipinstitute.org and click on the Career tab to learn more. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, if we are all honest with ourselves, we are all at some level students and disciples of the Leadership Institute, uh, myself included. Absolutely. Uh, what you've done here, what this organization has done, has sowed the seeds for conservatives uh, across the country for decades to stand up, to find a voice. I'm a small town kid from Minnesota, uh, didn't grow up in politics or policy, but uh, was introduced to the Leadership Institute when I was an intern here, not here at the Leadership Institute, but in Washington. And when I ran organizations like Vets for Freedom and Concerned Vets for America, we always knew we could go to the Leadership Institute to provide training if we couldn't do it ourselves. So uh, thank you for what you've done and what this, what this organization has done for a really long time. Um, I'll talk a little bit about this, this election uh, and this moment, a little bit about the work that um, my former organization, Concerned Veterans for America, did on reform at the Department of Veterans Affairs, which I think is also very telling about our political environment, and then a little bit about the book. I'm a, clearly a poor author and then I didn't even bring copies of my book <laughs> or a copy of my book, but you can buy them online uh, or if, if, if you are so inclined. So my apologies for not having them here, but I've been on the road and was in Farmville yesterday as well and, and uh, across the country. So as a movement conservative, as someone who looked at seven years of fundamental transformation of Barack Obama, who looked at the erosion of America's leadership on the world stage, uh, I think we were all looking at this election cycle to say, this is our moment to capture the mantle, to provide the contrast, to have that debate and that discussion about why someone like Ronald Reagan or why conservatism has its moment to reinvigorate America. We were all waiting for that and looking for that. And I think we all projected that on the candidates that we supported amongst the 17. Uh, that were arrayed in front of us. I was a Marco Rubio guy uh, to begin with, and then happily became a Ted Cruz guy, and then reluctantly became a Donald Trump guy, and now I'm enthusiastically a Donald Trump guy. And I'll tell you why. Because the contours of this election are not the traditional left-right that we want to think about. I wish they were. That's a familiar election cycle that all of us have engaged with in the past, where the, the Democrat talks, the Republican talks about simplifying the, and lowering the tax code, and and then the Democrat talks about maybe a little bit more taxes here and a little bit more regulation there, and we, we, we find somewhere, something in the middle, or, or we go one way or the other. This, this cycle, this, what's happening in our politics is, is, in that Brexit moment sense, is this idea that we're fighting for the very existence of America. 
uh, that, that the wet blanket of progressivism, of political correctness, uh, has, has become so burdensome and so thick and, and been rammed down our throats so proactively that the elect, it's almost a guttural scream of the electorate to say, uh, we need to fight back because in the military, uh, if, you're, if you're setting up a defensive position, and I was, an, I was a platoon leader, an infantry platoon leader, if you're sitting in a defensive position, you have something called the final protective line, where you lock the machine guns in interlocking sectors so that if the enemy is, is overrunning you, you've, you've got the ability to, to defend yourself, well, hopefully. Uh, I feel like it, that Donald Trump right now represents for conservatism and America kind of this final protective line scream of, wait, you're undercutting the very institutions. We're not debating the very institutions our country was based on. You know, we used to debate the Confederate flag and whether it should be allowed to fly in the South or whatever. Now we're debating the American flag. Now we're debating, no, seriously, in our college campuses, we're watching athletes take a knee on the field. We're watching high school athletes replicate it. We're watching institutions. I, I always ask this question. How many people in here know whether their local public high school says the Pledge of Allegiance? Okay, few. Do, do they say it? They do. Okay, because most don't know and most don't say it on a regular basis at their public high school. And when you start to think about that basic thing and then push it throughout our entire society, that's what people are feeling. And they're watching an elite media and they're watching elite establishment members who have betrayed them, mostly on the left, but obviously on the right as well. And they're saying, I don't want any of you all. And I don't know what Donald Trump's gonna do when he comes to town, but I hope he overturns the apple cart. And he at least tells me that it's okay for me to love my country. I mean, that's really what he, it, it, I feel this, either you, you ha we have a country or we don't. Either we love America or we don't. Either we have borders or we, we welcome in the global, the, the open borders world that uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton say they want. Either we support our police or we retrain them all because they're all racists. Uh, either we believe in our flag and stand for it or, or we don't. Either we rebuild our military or we d allow ourselves to diminish like Western Europe. We gut our militaries and pay for our welfare states and, and rush off into the high seas of history. Uh, it, it, the very, so, so that's how I see Trump. Uh, and I also look at the Supreme Court and the two or three picks that he will be able to make and the list that he has provided, and I say, I'm in for that. Because I know that two or three more Sonia Sotomayors and Elena Kagans, and we're in some serious trouble. Uh, some serious, serious trouble. The Constitution's not a roadblock to their ideological agenda, uh, what they would do with a court like that. So that's, that's kind of the way in which um, I think Trump has changed our politics. The question is, you know, what comes next? If he were elected, what does that look like? How do conservatives make sure he governs conservatively? Uh, you know, whether it's uh, rebuilding the military or the tax pro uh, proposals that he's made that are fantastic. Uh, the Supreme Court nominees, you don't get to just go to the one and then go to your own. You got to stay on the list. Those types of things are going to be things that conservatives would pay attention to. And if, if Hillary Clinton wins, uh, then we're going to, the fundamental transformation continues. And I think there is going to be a, a massive reexamination on our side of the aisle of how do we articulate this, this new dynamic in our politics where John F. Kennedy would be a conservative Republican today. I mean, the left is so far left that what our advantage is is they are going to such illogical conclusions when they go so far left that we don't have to point to conservatism. We're just pointing to the flag at this point and saying, like, we, we believe in this. We actually want a country. We believe our nation is special. We believe in free markets and not socialism. Uh, we think the individual uh, should have personal responsibility. We believe in faith. 
We think faith matters. We're not in for secular humanism across the board. I mean, those are the things at stake and being debated uh, right now. So it's been, it, but it's, it's, it's hard sometimes in the middle of our own political discussions to divorce ourselves from our own uh, allegiances or camps of what we thought and where we were um, and, and instead try to say, what is really happening here? And it doesn't change the fact that I'm a movement conservative. I, I know what I know. I know that Donald Trump as president isn't going to be a perfect reflection of conservatism. He doesn't speak the language of conservatism. Uh, but, but a great example of why uh, he resonates is why do evangelical Christians love Donald Trump? Many of them. Uh, it, it's not because he calls it two Corinthians. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I, I, I don't question his faith. I, I'm sure he believes well, exactly what he says he believes. It's not because he pours over the Bible. It's because he's said, I am willing to fight to the death for your ability to worship as you please. I recognize there's this thing called radical Islam. And I recognize that the heads of Christians are being chopped off. And I'm going to call it out and fight it. When we've had for too long a lot of tap dancing on our side on, on some of those issues and self apologizing uh, for, for our stances. In some ways, what I, what I call uh, what a lot of us, uh, not a lot of us, but many people have grown is sort of a Trump spine. It's like kind of makes everybody stand up and say, listen, my country is special. I'm done apologizing for it. And when I look out in this room, I see a room full of deplorables <laughs> who are irredeemable. Uh, and it's because, and you know why? Because if you're conservative, if you're conservative, or you believe in principles, and again, Donald Trump isn't a perfect articulator of all those, so I understand the necessary caveat, and he, you know, he has a way of speaking and a, a pointed counterattack approach that would be different than many of us would take, and, any, and future candidates are going to have to realize you can't run like Donald Trump if you don't have The Apprentice and billions of dollars and 10 million Twitter followers. It's not going to work, so it's, it we'll have to be careful about the lessons that are learned for future candidates, uh, but what he's saying, he's saying, they they look at conservatives and they look out and they see racists and misogynists and, and Islamophobes and uh, xenophobes. And, and that's because you may want a wall or maybe you don't want to let in every poorly vetted Syrian refugee or maybe you do, you do believe in rebuilding the military uh, so, or, or you do think you should support our cops. Those are the, those are the types of things that, that find you in the irredeemable, deplorable basket, uh, which are quite different than the accusations that they make. Are you interested in running for office? Want to work on a campaign? At the Leadership Institute, it is our mission to increase the effectiveness of conservative activists and leaders in the public policy process. We offer over 40 different trainings, including campaign management school, on-camera TV trainings, and writing workshops. If you want to make a difference in public policy, visit leadershipinstitute.org. That's leadershipinstitute.org. A, a bit of a transition here to uh, why, why I like the uh, Leadership Institute. It does train grassroots activists uh, to go out there and take the principles that we believe in and activate them, which is what we ultimately have to have. The left is counting on us to be silent. They're counting on those institutions to be oppositionless. That's so they can create their safe spaces in which the microaggressions occur, and then they can they can all uh, basically decide what the acceptable speech is, what's tolerated in an entirely intolerable intolerant way. That's how they operate. Uh, but grassroots is hard. 
and it's very it's difficult to make happen one of the I had a great opportunity with concerned veterans for America the last group that I ran for about three and a half years to try to build a grassroots army of veterans and military families uh, to fight for primarily reform at the Department of Veterans Affairs and what I what I say is everything I learned about Washington DC or I have learned about DC in our political process I learned while fighting for reform at the Department of Veterans Affairs in fact I learned that everything the electorate in some ways is angry about is personified in 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 this department that has this glorified Washington mission that we all agree with we all want to serve veterans and make sure their needs are met but but we've been promised heaven for for, for decades and they've delivered hell for these guys who are waiting and stuck in a bureaucracy yet unfortunately we know the liberals aren't going to change they're invested in single-payer top-down government-run health care the VA is their model of the future for all of us that's how they believe health care should be delivered uh, but it's the it's the Republican that I've watched on Capitol Hill be feckless on so many turns, unwilling to fight special interests, unwilling to, to speak candidly about principles that work for fear of being attacked. Uh, and and I, it is sort of, it's, it's an erosion of courage at many levels, even amongst Republicans that have reminded me that guys like Donald Trump and, and guys like Ted Cruz resonate because people are sick of sending people to Washington who said they were going to be conservative warriors and they went to Washington and became conservative weenies. And no, I mean, they're sick of it. And that, that is part of what, uh, what you're seeing. And you see it at the Department of Veterans Affairs. I mean, it's $160 billion department, second largest department in the federal government. Over 300,000 employees, 340,000. It's twice the size of the Marine Corps. I mean, this is the federal government uh, come a knocking. Serves about 7.5 million veterans. Yet veterans, as you've seen as recently as, you know, just yesterday, Phoenix, the Phoenix VA, where the scandal started, is now admitting that veterans are still waiting and dying on secret lists at the VA. Because it's not, because what the left will tell you is it's always about, we're just $5 billion away from utopia. Right, just five billion dollars, a few more doctors, um, and 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 a few more bureaucrats, and a couple more hospitals, and all the vets are going to be taken care of. And it's those evil Republicans that won't sufficiently fund it. Yet the VA's received over a hundred thousand additional employees in the last decade, over a, over a sixty billion more dollars since 2009. I mean, this is not a poorly funded department. Uh, so that's that's the way they look at it. As conservatives, we should take a a fresh look, willing to take a look at the VA and why it doesn't work. First of all, it doesn't work because no one can be held accountable. You can't be fired. Why can't anyone be fired at the VA? The American Federation of Government Employees, AFGE, uh, which controls not just the, the employment mechanisms, but the VA and the VA secretary and calls the shots. And when no one can be fired, you can't change a culture. So you can have, so Bob McDonald, who's a fine man, shows up as the VA secretary, put, you know, puts out shiny new pins that say we care or I care at the VA and says a bunch of PowerPoints and we're going to retrain some people. But that, that doesn't change a culture. If you're bad actors, still exist and get shuffled around the system. Everyone else sees that and the incentives never change. So the, what's the first thing you should do? You should pass a bill in, in Congress that says give the secretary the ability to fire poorly performing employees. It's common sense. A lot of conservatives and Republicans support it. Some don't because a lot of them don't want more enemies like the AFGE that can run ads against them at home in their district. Uh, if, you know, and the left reacts predictably. If you want some uh, fun reading, just go home, Google my name and AFGE, and you'll find a nice 29-page report, has my face on it, that says, a veterans group that hates veterans is the name of the thing, and my face is on there, and 23 pages of it are about what a horrible person 
I am. Because their approach is to attack and impugn and discredit the individual. Uh, Saul Alinsky taught them how to do it. They know how to do it. Uh, not your ideas. So, and then they build up a straw man of privatization. What Pete wants to do is kick all the vets out on the street and tell them good luck. Privatize the whole thing and shut it down. That's what they say when we make the second part of whatever advocacy uh, case we make, which is after accountability comes choice true choice for a veteran to either go to a VA facility if they believe their VA facility is good or go to a private provider and the dollars follow them uh, so they can be seen promptly in a quality way. And that is all the ripple effects the conservatives and free market folks understand that when there's competition, when the VA suddenly realizes, holy cow, he can go to Dr. Smith down the road instead of here, they have to treat that veteran as a customer as opposed to a widget or a number and they compete for that person. And you can do that kind of choice in a way that doesn't undercut or crush the VA system, uh, which are the concerns of some. So you can make, you can, and we put out a report that makes that case. But accountability and choice are the types of things that we ought to be for every day of the week and twice on Sunday and have representatives in Washington willing to make that case. But it's much easier to design some sort of a niche bill with a really cool title that everyone agrees on and then gets passed and you can put out a press release in your district and say, I love the vets, because everyone loves the vets. It's really hard to say, I love the vets so much, I'm gonna take on these entrenched interests, take a lot of flack for it, and then maybe not get reelected or you know maybe get some bad press because guess who else is just as vehemently in opposition to real reform at the VA? Most veterans groups. Believe it or not, if you don't believe it, watch it. Most veterans groups are just like special interest groups in any other industry, existing to defend the status quo that exists at the VA. And that's not to say they're bad people. I respect the heck out of these guys in these institutions. But usually, just like in the political level, there's a big disconnect between the Washington leadership of these veteran service organizations that, what do they want after you get a little cozy here in Washington? You want to get invited to the cocktail parties, right? You want the Democrats to like you, you want the Republicans. Republicans to like you, you're friends with everybody, and that means you can't disagree with anybody too much and you got to get along with everybody, which means no difficult controversial legislation. But at the post level, post 225 in Forest Lake, Minnesota, where I'm a member of the American Legion, those guys are fired up. They're sick and tired of the fact that their healthcare, the healthcare, they got to wait two months for basic appointments and they don't have, they don't have any choice. So leadership has to exploit in the Senate or in this country the fact that most veterans are with them, even if the veteran service organizations in Washington are going to howl with press releases. But that's hard uh, for a mem I mean, it's not really hard, but it's, it's politically difficult for certain members of Congress when they're getting attacked by veteran service organizations. So what we did at CVA was try to build a group, and it still exists and still doing that right now, that, that would uh, provide cover real cover for members of Congress who are trying to do the right thing. A group that had, that's, whose special interest is actually delivering for veterans as opposed to the institution and the bureaucracy of the VA. Uh, so you start to pull apart the VA problem and you start to see a lot of similar problems. Why couldn't you, shouldn't you be able to fire employees in any entrenched bureaucracy that doesn't work? Uh, look at education. Why are we, you know, if we look at equal opportunity that doesn't exist for many kids in inner cities and rural areas, why don't they have a real choice where the dollar 
scholars can follow them and a parent is empowered. Uh, if we believe in equal opportunity as conservatives, that's something we should go at ferociously and unapologetically. Uh, so, I mean, it starts to, it's sort of, you start to, when you start to pull back the onion, you start to realize how Washington gets away with what it does with press releases and show bills and show votes. And you can't change that until you build a, a, a group or a groups of groups that can fight back against it, which is why what the Leadership Institute does is so important. Last thing I'll touch on my book very quick, very briefly, and then I'll just open it up for a couple of quick questions. The book I wrote is called In the Arena, and it's uh, based on a quote many of you probably are familiar with, the Teddy Roosevelt quote, the man in the arena quote. It starts out with, it's not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out where the doer of deeds could have done them better or where the strong man stumbles. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, and who strives valiantly for worthy causes. And it goes on and finishes with, so that he shall not be amongst those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. And I, I, I printed that out before I went to Gitmo and it, took it with me to Gitmo in Iraq and Afghanistan and I always put it up wherever I was and asked myself, am I striving valiantly? Am I in the arena? Am I fighting for a worthy cause? Is my face marred? And I look at a room like this and this is a group of folks that are in the arena, have been in the arena. You're waking up, you're coming here, you're at the Leadership Institute, you're true believers. I wrote the book because I, we need to inspire the next generation, everybody, to remember that America is a special place, but why it's a special place and that it's really basic stuff that perpetuates it. So I love the quote, but I didn't read the whole speech that Roosevelt gave in 1910 until I came back from my third deployment in Afghanistan. And I read it and I was like, holy crap, this, this guy, this is good stuff. Uh, it's, the whole speech is called Citizenship in a Republic. Citizenship in a Republic. And it's actually reprinted in the back of the book. Uh, and it is um, it's sort of an un-PC speech before there was PC. And I know whenever I look out at a group of conservatives and talk about Roosevelt, I get about half the audience rolling their eyes, right? Listen, I come at Roosevelt with clear eyes about his descent into progressivism and his Bull Moose candidacy that gave us Woodrow Wilson and all that stuff. Set all that stuff aside, and he gave us the modern regulatory state, totally get it. Set all that aside, engage with the speech as a speech itself in 1910, given by a former Republican president who had just been on an African safari for a year. No one had heard from him for a year. He was the most, arguably the most famous man in the world. And he was coming back from this African safari back to America and went through Europe kind of for a, for a tour and gave his keynote speech in Europe at the Sorbonne, the University of Paris in France on April 23rd, 2010. The world really hadn't heard from Teddy Roosevelt since he'd left the presidency and he'd been in the woods shooting big game for a year. And they were kind of wondering, what's this guy going to say? And so this speech was breaking news in 1910 in a very different way than Fox News, but it was reprinted uh, in every newspaper in America, in the New York Times, across Europe, everyone engaged with it. And the French elites there were, there were a thousand, it, was, it was a room built for a thousand, but there were 3,000 in there, totally packed. I think they thought they were going to get this philosophical speech from Teddy Roosevelt. And instead, he stood up there and said, if you want to keep your republic, and if we want to keep our republic, a great republics like ours require just one thing, good citizens good citizens that perpetuate that great republic. And then he laid out what good citizens look like. And it was sort of the reaction of the French press at that time was sort of this, yeah, he's right, but it's just so much more philosophical and complex than that. You know, it's sort of a typical elite answer of just dismissing the basics. And you'll have to read the book to get all of what it is, but the four basic ingredients of good citizenship, the willingness to work, you know, Arthur Brooks calls it earned success, and he's right. It's the dignity of a day's work and, and the, the degradation of dependency and what it does, the corrosiveness of it, the willingness to work. Second is the willingness to fight. 
by force of arms if necessary, but in your individual spheres of influence. We, the liberties, we, freedoms we have are barely given away to invading armies, are rarely given away to invading armies. It's usually death by a thousand regulations or incursions or retreats or places where we decide, hey, my school doesn't say the pledge anymore, but I'm not really going to speak up about that. Or I could have ran for city council, but I didn't. Or I should have said this in my church, but I didn't. Ways in which we don't stand up in the arenas we affect for the things that we believe in. And then things change, and they change slowly, and they change slowly around us. Free peoples don't stay free unless they fight for what they have. Uh, the third aspect is large, healthy, patriotic families. Demographics matter. Uh, look at Western Europe uh, today. As I mentioned, you've got your welf welfare state. Uh, got your military, they're not gutting their welfare state. They got their military to pay for their welfare state. They open up their borders and don't demand allegiance and assimilation. And it's no surprise you get what you get. You get the reaction we got in the UK. Uh, it's not a surprise that the most prominent boy's name three times over to a newborn in London today is Muhammad. Demographics matter. London will never look the same. Uh, it, and, and that's because how many kids you have really does does matter. And I, I learned that uh, in Afghanistan. I was sitting down late one night with an Afghan interpreter and uh, we were talking about religion and faith and the army used to say to us, uh, don't talk religion with the Afghans. And I used to look at them like, what, are we, what else are we going to talk about? <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's every part of their life, right? I mean, Islam is sort of, it's far more comprehensive than any of us understand in its pervasiveness uh, of, of politics and law and life and family and religion and commerce. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's there. So we were talking, and he said, it was, was not a profound statement. He's not a radical. This, this kid is now in America. I helped him get here because I would trust him with my life, and I know um, he would with mine. And he said one night, he said, Pete, it's inevitable. Islam will rule the world. The prophet foretold it. Uh, we're having 10 kids and you're having one. <laughs> Do the math. And this is not a, a super well-educated, just a regular guy, not a radical. I mean, when you start to think about that, uh, we have to, you don't just perpetuate yourself. History is not over in America. America is not inevitable. You know, the Reagan quote, we all know, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. You don't pass it to the next generation in the bloodstream. You have to be intentional about perpetuating it. So I have three little boys, Gunner, Boone, and Rex, and I'm going to teach them to be good little patriots. And it's my job to do that, to, to believe in something greater than themselves, to love to, to love their country so much that they'll fight for it if necessary. Uh, and I think we sometimes assume that the institutions we have today are doing that. We can't make that assumption anymore, including our public schools, uh, which is an unfortunate reality uh, that I think conservatives have to do more to address as well. And then the fourth aspect is, uh, is which could be the first, is character and faith is if you don't have a moral compass, an internal moral compass, you, do, you need the Leviathan of big government, uh, ultimately to control conduct. Uh, it is, uh, it's, it's free people's, uh, everybody knows Washington's farewell address. I mean, our, our republic was made for a religious and, and spiritual and faith-filled people. If you don't have that, uh, I think that the cascading effect of us ripping God out of the public square and our culture and our society has been massive. So here's Teddy Roosevelt in front of this audience, and he says, work, fight, family, faith. And the French are like, that's it? And he's like, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, the building blocks are actually very basic. And the arena, citizenship, is not about protesting and voting. I mean, those are all fine manifestations. It's actually about who you are, what you do, and what you fight for. 
Uh, and so looking inward and pointing inward first and then projecting out that belief in what you fight for is kind of the point of the book. And then the whole second part of the book is about American leadership in the world, which I'm happy to take questions about. There's obviously uh, our retreat from the world stage over the last seven years has had massive and devastating consequences. Uh, and Roosevelt, again, predicted that by saying uh, we have to get away from the temptation to view ourselves as citizens of the world. And how often do we hear that? Global citizenship, citizens of the world, scaringly high percentage of kids coming out of high school and college today see themselves as global citizens before American citizens, which is also a, a problem. And we have a president right now who sees himself as a citizen of the world. And when you understand that, it's sort of that lens is it's, you start to see and understand why he takes the stances that he does. So the point of the book is if you have someone you know in your family or that you um, that that just doesn't isn't clicking on why we should be fighting, I hope it can inspire and remind them. And I like Teddy because we, we need Teddy right now. We need someone that's going to say, be tough, stand up straight, rub some dirt on it, take off your bike helmet, no fifth place trophies, like it's time to fight, right? And get after it because what we believe in is good and right and true. And, and we, we're, we're breeding generations of people who won't fight, who won't stand up. And, uh, and thankfully, I'm grateful for places like the Leadership Institute uh, that are fortifying kids of the next generation because it's, uh, it's all about them and, and what kind of country we pass to them and what they do, do with it. So thank you for having me. I'm happy to answer some questions. Thanks for listening to the Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to share and subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. To listen to more breakfasts, head over to the Leadership Institute YouTube channel. And to see who our next WWCB speaker is, visit our website at leadershipinstitute.org. The Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast is produced and edited by Alexander Chang with support from Tiffany Roberts and Jared Cummings. Advertisements by Alexander Chang and Christopher Olson. Executive produced by David Fenner and Morton Blackwell.